Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. I'm Lonnie Lowry. I'm a professor and a bodybuilder, and as a man-of-war expert, I'm calling to you from the Valley of the Kings. Ooh, you are picking up steam with the man-of-war discography. Wow. I thought you'd like that, Rob, since, uh, since yeah. the guy on the on the forums was saying, Lonnie turned me on to man-of-war, and I know you got hot about that. No, I actually wasn't hot about it at all. I just, I, I just re- didn't remember that or didn't know that you... <laughs> Really, were a Man of War fan. Not that they wouldn't appeal to you, but whatever. Rob Forces Fortney here. I'm an editor, former competitive bodybuilder, competitive powerlifter, strength athlete, and all around snappy guy. Snappy guy. This is Phil Stevens. I'm uh, the owner of Strength Guild, uh, founder of LiftForHope.org. I'm a powerlifter and Island Games athlete and strength coach. Right on. And today we've got Nick Tuminello with us, who's sort of a one of the guys I would consider sort of a super trainer. He's getting a lot of attention uh, on YouTube and in the magazines and that, that sort of thing. And, and there's some good reason for that. So we're going to get to Nick in just a minute. Um, <clears throat> but to set up the topic uh, that Nick's sort of an expert in, I want to share a few things. Um, Nick and I had a conversation a couple of months ago about how a lot of the guys that get hurt are the ones going for really big numbers, and you know, especially in certain movements in in powerlifting. And I started to dig because I tweaked my back recently, and I've been doing what I would consider lighter work, bodybuilding kinds of work uh, in the gym. So here are a couple of things I just wanted to draw everybody's attention to, start with a little sort of educational stuff. Strength and Muscle Sport News. The first one was a bit of a disappointment to me. This is April 2012 um, from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. The title of this is, are deep squats a safe and viable exercise? Well, what disappointed me about this was there's no mention of lower back, you know, strain or herniated discs or anything like that. This is 100% about knees, 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 knees. So now there's nothing wrong with that. Um, here's how it sets it up, though. There's a great deal of debate among strength conditioning professionals, rehab specialists, and researchers regarding the safety and efficacy of performing the deep squat. In this article, the potential benefits and potential risks of performing this closed kinetic chain lower extremity exercise will be discussed. And again, no mention of lower back anything. And that's where I thought, well, you know, what about master's level guys? What about older guys? You know, we had, um, who was it that was on the show a couple of weeks ago? Phil, he's got some, he's got like an L5S1 herniated disc or something and, uh, sleeps with a wedge under his knees and, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> Anyway, God, I, I don't remember that. Might have been Chad. You know, definitely the kind of situation where I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to go through life popping Vicodin every couple of hours and, you know, having to get wheeled up to the squat rack so I could do my one heavy set, you know, and then go back into pain and pop more Vicodin, you know. So <laughs> I wanted to go look and see, you know, how uh, risky is this? So the first thing I'm going to share with you here is this is a, a paper from 2006, but there's not a ton of data here on this, but. This is epidemiology of um, competitive powerlifters, the age of uh, effects of age, body mass, competitive standard, and gender. 
So here it's um, the injury epidemiology of competitive powerlifters was investigated. Self-reported uh, reported retrospective injury data for one year was collected at, along some uh, biographical info from 82 men and 19 women of varying ages, both open and masters, different body masses, lightweight competitors and heavyweight, uh, and different competitive standards, national versus really elite international. Uh, it says the most commonly injured body regions were the shoulder, 36%. And, Phil, I think you and I have discussed that, that the bench uh-huh. is uh, rough. Yeah. Um, Followed by the lower back, 24%, and then the other, the others were actually much less, elbow, knee, etc. Um, it says 59% of the injuries were acute and 41% were chronic. But they also pointed out that it was hard to tell what was acute versus chronic because the acute injuries could have been a blowout after something that's been building up. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it, it looks like actually slightly more acute, but uh, here's a quote here. The relative proportion of injuries at some body regions varied significantly as a function of competitive standard or gender. No significant differences in injury profile were seen between open and masters or between lightweight and heavyweight lifters. Powerlifting appears to have a moderately low risk of injury regardless of the lifter's age, body mass, competitive standard, or gender compared to other sports. Now, there's only been five studies that have looked at the injuries in powerlifters, and uh, that, and that's why I want to I want to dig into some of the specifics here and just share with it, with this with everybody because this isn't free online kinds of stuff. Um, but they actually, if you look at a lit review of um, five different studies, they all pretty much say the same thing: that um, lower back, vertebral column, and shoulders are where guys get hurt. Um, and some of this I thought was interesting too. They looked at age, so like the open competitors were 28 year olds, masters lifters were about 50 years old. The open lifters had 10 years of experience. The masters lifters had 13.5 years of experience. Um, and then they didn't just look at open and masters; they looked at lightweight versus heavyweight. The lightweight guys were, uh, let's see, 161 pounders, and then the heavyweights in in these in this particular study they were 240 pounders, 238 to be exact. So, anyway, I was curious about if you break this down, who's at risk for what? Because they don't really share that in the abstract. And this is sort of the way it looks. Shoulder injuries were about the same whether you're open, masters, heavyweight, or lightweight. Somewhere around 22%, or I'm sorry, uh, 33% of the injuries were uh, at the shoulder um, because of presumably bench work. Um, Lower back injury was similar in open versus masters. And that actually surprised me because I thought masters guys might have more degenerative discs, you know, stuff like that, but mm-hmm. p- apparently not. And then, um, interestingly, though, uh, heavyweights seem to have more lower back injury than the lightweights. It may be because they're really moving the huge, mm-hmm. huge loads, yeah, I mean, well, even, yeah, even relative to their, ba- their back, you know. Sure, yeah. Uh, so they had 30, uh, the heavyweight guys had 30% lower back injury and the lightweight guys only 17 percent so uh definitely more problems uh looking there um if you continue to dig through this this is a table of causative activity so what caused it and this is sort of interesting squats um basically more of a problem causative problem in masters athletes even though the masters athletes didn't have necessarily more back injuries they did have uh, squats as a causative factor about twice as often. And so that does sort of suggest that maybe the older backs are uh, getting a little degenerated there in the discs or something. Now, interestingly, Phil, the deadlift, master's level guys, older guys, the 50-year-olds, 
they had about half, less than half of the deadlift uh, injury that the other guys did. Mm. So maybe just they get so good at it that they just don't hurt themselves. I don't, I don't know. No. So, uh, and then if, if you look at national versus elite international standard, it looks like the elite international guys had about twice as many uh, squats causing the problem as the the slightly lesser caliber national guys. So anyway, just a breakdown of a whole lot of things. They do go on to say that you know the power lifts. Uh, the three big lifts accounted for 52% of the total injuries, but that's interesting because that means 48% is from accessory work or uh, other stuff. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's not always just the three big lifts doing this. Yeah, you know, and the two big, th- the, the the two things that need to be noted about the you know the top the, the big three lifts are a probably because you know around 50% probably because as we've said the guys who are doing those to any consistency or intensity level are either competitive or very serious about you know increasing the weights on those things yeah. or b because they are complex lifts you know they're basic lifts but they're complex enough to do them properly and you know uh, you know preventative towards injury you know that i mean you you guys all know as well as i do that you go in the gym and you know 90 percent of guys who are in there doing any of those three lifts are doing it all wrong yeah so i mean yeah. well i think it also i think really to me listen to what you said i think it all boils down to load being moved um the from from the lightweight to heavyweight and then also the difference in between national and international level i mean it's you know if you if you light a little small campfire there's a lot less of a chance that you're going to start a forest fire than if you light a big bonfire. Yeah. You know, those guys are moving a lot more load. There's a lot, there's a smaller margin for error. If you get off just a little bit when you're deadlifting 900 pounds, that could mean a, a big injury. Right. You well, know, interestingly, the deadlift. They, you know. Yeah, the deadlift didn't pan out as much as, like, yeah. the squat, for example. But I think that's arguably, you know, I'm, and there's actually pictures in here of uh, what they consider a low bar squat versus a high bar squat, you know. Um, and you can actually see how it, it definitely puts stresses on different parts of the back. You know, the power lifter type squad is, it, it shifts a lot of it to me, like down by the sacrum in a lot of ways oh, because yeah. of the way that they, you know, you, you jut your ass out and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But, oh uh, yeah, and it loads up your posterior chain a lot more. Let me, let me but. just read you a few more quotes here from this and then I'll, I'll, I've got one more bit. Um, it says, uh, these findings are consistent uh, that the bench press was responsible for a greater proportion of injuries uh, and was more frequently affected by injury. Uh, so, again, the bench press, again, we've been talking about that as sort of the risky one. It does say the injury epidemiology of men and women appeared relatively similar. I know we've got some women listeners, of course, so uh, I didn't go into the women that much because it says statistically they're very similar. Uh, it says the major difference was that uh, the women had no chest or thigh injuries. Which was sort of interesting, but and and a last little bit for Fortress and Phil, you were talking about the load moved. Here it says they actually looked at a correlation between the load lifted in the three big lifts and muscle mass, and there was a moderate to high correlation. So uh, let's see, the correlation with fat-free mass was 0.86 to 0.94. So if you think of that like a percentage, like 86 to 94 percent related, you know, between the amount of weight that you're handling and the bigger you are. And I know, Rob, you've been saying that to people for the longest time. They're like, oh, you, you're big. That's why you lift a lot. You're like, no, I lift a lot, which makes me big, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a lot of those types of people never seem to realize where, you know, that guys like me and Phil and you, Lonnie, we all started, you know, <laughs> 100 pounds more or less. 
Yeah. You know, Lonnie, you started lifting, you know, two years before I did when I was 15. You know, I mean, hell, I was 130 pounds when I started, you know. So you strong know I mean? correlation. This doesn't really prove cause and effect, but clearly the guys that are moving tons of weights in the big three, it's got a very strong relation to their fat-free mass, as you might guess. All right. Anyway, I was remiss. The author here, that's Justin Keogh, Patria Hume, and Simon Pearson. That's Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research 2006. So it's just interesting to see where the injuries happen and in who, you know, they happen and what's causing them. So that's uh, that's one. And then the other thing that drew my attention to this topic, and we've had some questions about back in, in particular, mm-hmm. is last week on the Sunday morning show, which is just sort of a, I think it's CBS News show, um, there was a, a program uh, blurb about, it's called A New Hope for Back Pain Sufferers. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but here, let me give you a, a few uh, tidbits. Eight out of ten Americans experience debilitating back pain at some point in their lives. Um, it says uh, the intervertebral discs, either herniation or whether they're just worn and arthritic or associated with pain, said Dr. Augustus White, a professor at Harvard Medical School, uh, who has literally written a book on lower back pain. So, again, this is the Sunday morning cover story uh, by Martha uh, Tickner, I think is her name. Um, anyway, it, the, they're saying that once a physician rules out tumor or infection, you can be confident that you're not going to harm a patient by saying, give yourself four to six weeks. Believe it or not, 90% of disc injuries heal themselves after a few weeks, especially with physical therapy. Wow. So that's sort of amazing to me, and I think that's very encouraging, uh, especially because my lower back is really screaming at me right now. I mean, a lot of the typical things, too, you know, like if you lay prone on your chest you know and you arch up you know you can feel sort of a pinching uh you know and that's suggestive of herniation uh say that again what's the little test well like if you if you lay on your uh, if you lay on your stomach right okay you know and like put your your hands under your chest like you know you're sort of arched up a little right sure you're bulging posteriorly you know then that's going to pinch that and and sort of cause pain i think it's a similar like guys like to sleep in a recliner or, you know, they're doing everything they can not to be arched or too flat because it kind of pinches on the on the bulging discs, apparently. But uh, Oddly enough, in, in my studies, that's right where we found that fibromangina really manifests, too. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you saying, be a man and suck it up, or just for what? No, no, I'm just, I just had to add that in. It's been okay. a while since I talked about fibromangina. Oh, <laughs> This says 1.2 million Americans undergo spinal surgery each year. That's more than triple the number of bypass surgeries and four times the number of hip replacements. So obviously the back's a problem. You know, we walk upright. I think when nature did it to us, you're just, you're asking for some problems here. Um, it says approximately 300,000 of those back surgeries were spinal fusions. And I'll tell you, when they were showing this on TV, I was sort of uh, stunned. I mean, the x-rays of a spinal fusion, you know, you've got screws mega screws fusing those two discs together. And the problem with this, of course, is what they call the domino effect, where if you fuse two vertebral bodies together, the ones adjacent to them carry a lot of extra stress, and they start to degenerate. So anyway, the current, or at least the past approach of this spinal fusion might be going away, and that's why I'm reading this. Um, This says, uh, Kevin Pauza, founder of the Texas Spine Spine and Joint Hospital in Tyler, Texas, he says um, fusion was usually the wrong answer for my patients. If we immobilize a segment of the spine, the adjacent segment breaks down, known as the domino effect. I was just mentioning that. Um, 
he said, I was actually interested in something that was less invasive because, again, when you look at the x-rays, the screws and the fusing. So what he he thought was, well, what heals a cut? Well, you know, there are certain blood proteins. When you put them together, it's almost like an epoxy glue. So he's actually, instead of opening people up and fusing their disc screws, he's actually injecting thrombin and fibrinogen. And those help cuts heal. And he thought, well, this will act like epoxy. It'll get into any kind of cracks or damage in the disc. And he can actually rebuild the disc from the inside out without fusing it. So I just wanted to bring that to the listener's attention. Because if you do suffer from back pain, apparently after a few weeks of this, people are, um, at first they feel, you know, very odd and it, it maybe even hurts. They might even regret that they did it. But after a while, uh, injecting these two proteins into the discs really seems to help. And apparently there's a couple different clinical trials injecting different things into discs instead of just trying to fuse bones on either side like they've been doing with screws in the past. Not only that, but it's 95% cheaper than a $100,000 uh, spinal fusion surgery. So, hey, uh, Phil, are you riding down the highway on your new Harley? No, somebody's having getting way, way um, friendly with their mic, though. <laughs> Nick, is that you on the phone? Are you breathing? I'm here, but I don't hear any uh, feedback or anything. Usually, Rob's the one with the breathing. No, it's not me. Watch, I'm going to mute it. It's not me. Okay, no, that's fine. Anyway, that that's certainly enough. I just wanted to share what I could about the the prevalence of injury, you know, new treatments for back injuries, all that kind of stuff. Because again, that's going to set us up uh, for Mm -hmm. Nick in the second half of the show, who's a big proponent of hybridizing powerlifting type programs with bodybuilding programs, and it's actually something that I've been doing a lot back and forth over the last two years myself. So, hey, Can I actually just quickly uh, mention this email that I got from Will, which, which which I know you're talking to a lot about the whole back injury thing. Oh, yeah. He wants to just know if we think that to alleviate some of the, kind of the, the, the stress on his low back for the next foreseeable future, just to allow his low back to kind of heal a little bit, if we think using a trap bar for deadlifts... Um, is a good idea. Well, the thing is, I think you should also add in the part that he says he's fine with the deadlift. Now he's all healed up. So, I would preface my answer on that. Are, are we going to address this question now? Or? Oh, we could. <clears throat> my my answer would be no. I mean, I, I don't even look at... Uh, sure, the, I guess in the broadest term, the, the trap bar is a deadlift, but it's not like a deadlift. I mean, right. it, it's because the bar is moving through your center of mass, yeah. whereas a deadlift is going to be placed in front of you. You're, it's more of a hinging lift. Um, it's going to load up your posterior chain. I think I think he should deadlift if he wants to deadlift again, and if he's healed up and, like he says, he has no pain now, just don't go balls out. Yeah, You know, ease into it. Take three, four months to slowly work back up. Um, I think too many people, they see... Uh, you know, huge loads being moved by guys, um, and, and they want to jump in and, and do that. I think one of the best things I did, and I did it by accident early on, was was lots of high reps. You know, I did lots of good mornings for reps, lots of stiff-legged deadlifts and, and things like that, and um, I think it really bulletproofed my back. The only thing I think that's never hurt on me is my back, um, <laughs> the, despite what I've lifted. Right. You know, and I'm still a huge proponent. Everybody that comes in here and trains with me, we train, you know, we train our backs like bodybuilders a lot of the time. Um, you know, upper back, lower back, all that stuff. Um, so, 
Yeah. I, I'd say he's back into the deadlift. Don't. He needs to get his confidence back in it, number one. Well, that's actually why I actually sent him a respond email, and I said, uh, yeah. you know, maybe try and do higher light reps. Uh, yeah. Good mornings. Uh, not good mornings, sorry. Uh, stiff light deadlifts. Right. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, too, just as a disclaimer, we're assuming that the doctor says it's okay, that yes. any kind, like maybe you've gone through six <laughs> right. weeks of physical therapy, you know what I mean? Or like we just read, it's, it's sometimes you just got to bite the bullet for six to eight weeks and let things straighten up. you got to give yourself yeah. time to heal, yeah. you know, so... After that, I agree with Phil 100%. Then it's about confidence and, and you know, getting some conditioning done, I think. Mm-hmm. You know. I know. So. I agree. Okay. Okay, Nick, sorry for the delay there, bro. Uh, no problem. I have several thoughts that I could add to this uh, back issue if you want me to just interject, but I didn't want to interrupt your guys' flow there. I want to no, speak before I was – I didn't want to speak before I was spoken to. <laughs> no, man, Python. Um, um, well, actually, I just left a physical therapy conference in Seattle. I'm very, very good friends with the folks who run Northeast Seminars. Northeast Seminars is the biggest physical therapy continuing education provider in the country. They all the best PTs uh, from around the world come into the States and speak to their organization, and, and uh, I attend as many of those conferences as I can. I'm not a physical therapist. I'm not an acting physical therapist, but I like to learn as much as I can, and, uh, you know, it helps me interject on talk, talks like this. Um, so a couple random thoughts. Uh, Carl DeRosa, who wrote Mechanical Back Pain of Porterfield and DeRosa, Mechanical Neck Pain, several books, uh, he said the prognosis on waiting it out is is good, and that's pretty much on all injuries. He said pretty much, uh, he mentioned the Voltaire quote, and Voltaire's quote is something, he uses the word disease, but I'll, I'll, I'll substitute the word disease for pain. He says, um, we use therapy to entertain the patient while the body heals the pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, certainly consistent you know, when, with the literature that we just read there, yeah. Yeah, so when you have some of the best PTs in the world say the prognosis, prognosis on waiting it out is, is good, that, that goes to show that pretty much, you know, most of what we're doing, we may be able to accelerate the process just a bit, or we can hinder the process if we overwork ourselves. But if we just go to the old listen to the body and just don't be stupid about it, um, then we can do okay. Um, as far as the mechanical factors, like... Um, whether it be a degenerative issue, whether it be a disc herniation. I've looked at tons and tons and tons of research from pelvic tilts to leg-leg asymmetries to disc herniations and whatnot. And across the board, there's no direct correlation, even for arthritic changes and stenotic changes and all these things. There's no direct correlation to one thing causing back pain or not, meaning, you know, two people may have stenosis that shows up um, on screenings, but one person has pain, the other doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, right. If you talk to uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you know, Dr. Back, he'll tell you, well, if you break these people into subgroups, you know, there may be a little more correlation, and that would be uh, correct for specific back pain. But the whole concept of nonspecific back pain, which is what a lot of people have, right. means yeah. that you cannot break them into a subgroup. So I think a lot of people forget that, hence the term nonspecific back pain. So... Um, last thing I'll mention is that a lot of the pain uh, studies are talking about, you know, how they might not be related to the biomechanics, to the mechanics, and, but they're more related to the bio in biomechanics. Um, you know, so they're talking about how it's in the brain and the nervous system. You know, using the whole phantom pain as an example, how people lose a limb and still feel pain after in a limb that they haven't had for two years and whatnot. Um, and it actually led, and some of the therapies they're doing, like mirror box therapy, using the the good limb to trick the brain thinking it's the bad limb um, or the bad side. It really is, if you really think about it, it's really a 
uh, a feather in the cap for the old walk it off. You know, what they're saying is, you know, keep, gradually teach your body, your nervous system, that this is not painful once the healing occurs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so. Yeah, my wife was just talking about that. In fact, she's, um, she's a counselor and her, whatever interest is chronic pain. And she was talking about a lot of the phantom limb stuff just recently, like massaging the existing leg. Yeah, and almost tricking the brain that you're helping, you know, the phantom leg in a sense. And, you know, so there's definitely that sort of cognitive peripheral nervous system connection that's like. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and as far as from a structural standpoint, actually I just posted this on Facebook. Um, there's been two really good controlled studies recently on, um, vertebroplasties where they basically they take someone who has a, a, fra a fractured vertebrae or a highly degenerative vertebrae and they go in and inject bone cement in the vertebrae to add stability and strength and hike back to the vertebrae and it didn't help people with back pain. So, you know, if such a direct, straightforward procedure doesn't take your back pain any, away, any better than the people who got the sham procedure, people who thought they got the surgery but didn't, um, you know, they put them in the room, they, they put the fumes out, they, they, they made them think they were getting the procedure, didn't, and nobody really had a difference in pain. So that lends to the fact that it might not be as mechanical as we think, number one. And number two, uh, this is not for this conversation because it would be a whole other interview, but it also can lend some doubt for the whole core stability thing because, you know, everybody saw, well, it's about co-contraction to control your spine. Well, you create a co-contraction to stabilize your vertebrae. Well... You know, if bone cement <laughs> stabilize your vertebrae, that doesn't help. I'm not sure how much, you know, um, right. aging your abs and some things are. Well, I think that's I why they were excited about, the, you know, doing something directly with the discs. Here it says, um, Dr. Pauls has successfully treated 1,000 patients at this point. The FDA is looking at starting to look at this. It says the success rate's 86%, you know. So to me, it seems to make sense that the soft tissue, you know, something like a... a as analogous to a jelly donut between the vertebral bodies, you know, if you could somehow repair it from the inside, whether it's stem cells or, you know, some of those uh, blood proteins or whatever it is, 86% success rate is pretty freaking cool. But we really got to see where this pans out, you know what I mean? Because they're trying to inject a whole lot of things in there. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe the, di yeah. the disc approach will be a little different from the bone approach, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's been recent studies that show the jelly donut analogy is is kind of outdated because the disc doesn't move preferentially. I'm speaking from Carl DeRosa here. Preferentially towards the back or towards the front relative that your spine moves. It distributes itself to the path of least resistance. Um, and that being said, so that's kind of the whole jelly donut thing has been has been disproven now that they've got better technologies to look at at disc migration or the actual nuclear migration to be specific. Right. Um, and that being said, too, uh, the state of muscle contraction is the number one factor for causing disc compression. So the higher your muscles contract, the harder your muscles contract, the more compression you've got it, you have at your discs. Now, some would say compression is stability, but for some people who have a compression-related issue, then sometimes a heavier muscle contraction um, might be a problem. Where somebody, other people, it might not be an issue. So just, well, just why do you think that? Why do you think that is? And of course, I'm not on your your and Lonnie's scale of understanding these things. That's why I'm asking. Like you're saying, well, I, I'm just a lot of this is just me repeating things I've learned. I wouldn't call me a back specialist at all. Some of this is just regurgitation. So I don't want to take more credit than I get. Why do I think what is? Why do I think that? Well, you're you're saying about how people who have um, more muscle or muscle strength contraction or something in the back are the people who have more um, compression. Uh, well, see, it just depends. What I'm saying is now I'm kind of saying depends on what the issue 
is that they have in their in their back. And I don't know enough about back pain to say what might be a, what might be irritant. But you know, ever ever meet somebody who has a a, a disc herniation that's ear that has an inflamed nerve, and then they're so they're symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And if they laugh or cough, it really hurts yeah. them. Okay. Because what's happening is you're you're creating a heavy duty muscle contraction, and that puts pressure on the disc and expands the disc, and it's that nerve, and that nerve is already inflamed. Oh, okay, okay. It's like a chain reaction. Yeah, yeah. So it's not always. It's not what I'm saying is it's not always about a lack of strength. Sometimes it actually could be. Sometimes you need to take compression away. Sometimes you need to add compression for stability. And this would go back to what Stu McGill was talking about. If you can put people in subgroups. Some people, it may be a weakness issue, and they need better nerve contraction. Other people, it may be more of a neurogenic issue. Right. Even to defend these guys like this Martha Titchener who is talking about the jelly donut analogy, I think they're trying to, for lay people, they're just trying to explain as much as they can, I think, you know. But, uh, you know, they also point out how complex, first of all, the skeletal structure is complex. The muscular uh, attachments are then incredibly complex. One of the curses, I think, to being someone like Nick or myself is you don't have the experience of being, uh, you know, an orthopod. We're not a, an orthopedic surgeon with a spine specialty. So we, we look at these things and we learn what we can. And obviously you're, you're sharing literature, so, you know, that's important stuff. But I like, I, as I feel my back, I'm like, oh, do I have spondylolisthesis? You know, it's like this kind of shifting, uh, degenerative shifting of, of the vertebrae because I'm popping and clicking every which way and, you know, the more you read some of these pathophysiology books, the more you're like, oh, God, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And and then you add individual differences on top of it, you know. So I don't know. It's a yeah. complex topic. Yeah, and the, the, but really when it comes down to it, uh, you know, no, we still haven't, nobody really knows a damn thing about back pain. They really don't. And uh, because it's so... It's so unique, and I don't think I don't think we ever will because nobody invented the human body. No human invented the human body, so therefore we don't we can't really reverse engineer it. So everybody's always going to try and claim this and that and the other thing. But there's there's so many factors because of the whole logical experiment. You know, we're not a car that when uh you know something gets a little bit rusty or whatnot, then it just the car fails. We our body finds a way to compensate, and if it can control it, it's fine. And if it can't control it, right. then you got a it's problem. It's a changing system, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And people, you know, people always want to say that you, oh, well, your body is compensated, and that's the problem. It's like, no, sorry, that compensation is very normal. And if we couldn't compensate, none of us would be here talking today because our ancestors wouldn't have lived if they couldn't compensate. Well, I and, think a lot of people, are, especially especially bone. I don't think they realize they go through seven skeletons in their lifetime, I mean, you know, so to speak, because of bone turnover. You know, muscles turn over much more quickly than that. So you're, you're constantly remodeling based on your blueprint. So, mm-hmm. um, Okay, well, listen, we've been learning some from Nick Tuminello already here. So let, before we go to break, let's, let's get a quick intro. Nick, can you just tell everybody who you are and how you got into, uh, you know, training and iron in general? Sure. Um, well, I own Performance University, Hybrid Strength Conditioning, um, formerly in, living in Baltimore, Maryland, currently living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I want kind of a beach bum type mentality. So as soon as I got an opportunity career-wise to be able to uh, move myself, that's what I did. I've always thought about living in Florida, and now I'm enjoying it. So I owned a private personal training gym uh, with a very good friend and business partner named Mark Spataro. The gym was called Fitnology Maryland. We were quite successful and um, quite proud to say that we had probably one of the more diverse populations that we got a chance to work with on a regular basis at our gym. Um, I have zero, I can't really say I have a specialty. My specialty is hybrid training, but 
hybrid and kind of encompasses a little bit of everything because our average day would consist of, uh, you know, a Ravens player, a figure girl, uh, three MMA fighters, uh, two groups of seniors, and a few moms and dads, and maybe a kid athlete. That was an average training day for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't really be successful in that environment if you have a, a particular training bias because then you try to fit everybody into your bias versus, you know, putting, giving them a program based on principles around their goals. So I think we got really good at creating that hybrid approach. So I actually, in recent months since I moved here, I've decided after training 10, 12 hours a day for, I would say, eight, nine years straight since I've been 18. I'm 32 now. Um, the last few years, I've been transferring more and more to the education and to the writing about training. And uh, so I've kind of, I can't say I've walked away from training in the last few months, but I only have a few clients here in Florida some people come in, you know, want to train with me for a weekend, athletes and whatnot, and I teach mentorships. But I'm taking the next year or so and really focusing on uh, producing educational content, continuing to write articles, DVDs, teaching mentorships, and sharing all the experiences that we uh, that we had in training clients to help other trainers. And then I'll probably start marketing myself again in training and and get back to doing doing refocus on doing some of that. Mm-hmm. What so about you a, yourself? That's a short intro. Right. Uh, I was so a wrestler in school, martial artist. Yeah, um, yeah. I was, you know, like most kids in middle school, high school, especially high school, you know, I wanted to be big, have a big chest, big big arms. You know, I did lots of bench press and bicep curls and chin-ups. And, uh, you know, I always joked that I was saying I was, I did CrossFit and wrestling practice, but then I just called it working out. I did, uh, you know, I did 33 chin-ups, 55 bar dips, and I would run, I would run a mile in like six minutes. You know, I would, I, so I have, uh, I did that kind of stuff. Uh, now that's called CrossFit. But, um, right, yeah. Uh, you know, I was big into wrestling and, um, martial arts. Got into mixed martial arts as a young guy, uh, you know, early 20s out of, out of school and then gradually built that into Muay Thai because, because, um, the Jiu Jitsu part of it was really beating me up. And at the same time, I was doing indoor rock climbing, um, at a high level. So it was just between lifting and climbing and wrestling. Uh, it was all really, really hard on, on my body. So, Things started to fall apart at 25 or so to get injured a lot. Um, so now I just pretty much train sometimes twice a week, sometimes five days a week um, and with weights, and I normally do more five boxing three or four times a week as well, 10 okay. to 15 rounds. Right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Let's go ahead. We're going to take a brief break here. Uh, after we share some messages, we'll come back, and we're going to address the topic of the day, which is hybridizing bodybuilding and powerlifting uh, and we've got the guy perfect guy for it so we'll be right back hi this is dr lonnie lowry and on behalf of phil and rob i'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, 
and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, listeners, welcome back. This is Lonnie Lowry, and we've got uh, Fortress, Rob Fortney, and Phil Stevens, and Nick Tuminello. And we are going to discuss the topic of the day, which is hybrid bodybuilding and powerlifting training. Uh, and I wanted to start with a general question for you, Nick. Uh, I described you when we were down in Florida as sort of the Bruce Lee of strength training. So maybe, maybe explain that to listeners uh, as far as your general outlook on this kind of stuff. Oh well, I was—I yeah, definitely would never compare myself to Bruce Lee as far as his level, but I'll—but I'll take that because Bruce Lee is definitely one of my heroes, and uh, I, I don't you know, if you yeah, yeah. So, and, but I, I, yeah, I would say not trying to put myself on his level, but I, I think that's a good analogy as far as from a philosophical mindset. And everybody knows Bruce Lee is the movie star, but if you—if you're not as familiar, you may have heard of Jeet Kune Do. But just to give you a quick idea of why you're making that analogy if anybody's not familiar with Bruce Lee as the martial artist and the philosopher, the real guy, not the TV guy. Um, you know, he, he saw the, the strengths and weaknesses in various martial arts, and basically uh, every time he would talk to a martial artist, you know, a karate expert, taekwondo, kung fu, everybody would always claim that their method was the was superior, and the question he would always ask them is, well, if your, must, if your method has everything, it covers all bases, then what were other methods founded on? Why were other methods founded to begin with? So, and obviously, so he started creating his own system, Jeet Kune Do, which is kind of a hybrid. It has some groundwork. It has punching, kicking, grappling. And but what he'll tell you is, it's not a specific system. It's built around the individual. So it's a systemless system. It's it's a system in that you know that you're going to do a little bit of everything. But as far as the specific techniques, he's going to build them around your strengths and weaknesses because every human body moves differently and reacts differently. So it's a, it's a systemless system. So taking that into training, I have the same philosophy in training. You know, it, it always amazes me how there's so many coach versus coaches arguments. you got bodybuilders being pitted against power lifters. You've got functional training getting pitted against bodybuilding uh, you know, you got Pilates against yoga, core training, and you can just go on and on and on. And, you know, you look at all these arguments on forums and on whatever, and nobody ever wins because everybody has good reason for what they believe and they've gotten good results for what they've done. So we're back to this whole martial arts concept. If We'll just take the Bruce Lee concept. Why don't we just have the discipline to embrace the, the limitations and uh, of each uh, methodology, but also try not to be so biased and so closed-minded to em- also embrace the um, the strengths of these and figure out how to put them together and use them all to your advantage in a comprehensive program. Mm-hmm. Um, the the goal, which is where I think a lot of people get confused with hybrid training, is that there's a way to put them together where they work nicely and they complement one another, and there's also a way to put them together 
where they run into one another. So um, I always use the analogy of combat yoga. Combat yoga. <laughs> you know, so for instance, if I told you, hey, I'm going to give you an hour workout, and I'm going to, and I believe in yoga, and I believe in Muay Thai kickboxing or kickboxing combat type stuff. I would recommend giving somebody 30 minutes of, you know, the kickboxing and 30 minutes of the yoga because I would look at the yoga and say, well, the strengths of the yoga is it's good for relaxation and mobility and cool down. So that's better at the end. And the boxing is obviously the opposite of that. It's explosive. It's kind of an angry. It's total body movement. But, you know, the current approach to cross training, you know, the cross fit concept is you just jumble them together. So one minute of yoga and then one minute of boxing and then you do that for an hour. You know, to me, I would look at that and go, sure, you're going to burn calories and sure, you're going to get something out of it, but I can't relax in my downward dog position when I know in 30 seconds I get to get up and wail on the bag, and I can't maximally explode on the bag when I'm kind of relaxed from the uh, position I was just in. Right. So, okay. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Well, so... I'm gonna ju- I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit because I, one of my questions to you then is uh, I really want to get to this idea of how then you build these things together. But before I do that, specific to strength sports, specific to bodybuilding and powerlifting, for example, can you maybe just explain what are some of the benefits that you see bodybuilding bringing to powerlifting or vice versa? Let's just lay some groundwork with some of the benefits of hybridizing. Sure. Well, well. first off, that, that to me is always interesting because there are way more similarities than differences. For instance, if I'm going to do a bodybuilder chest workout, some guys do chest and shoulders together, uh, versus a powerlifter bench day, and it doesn't matter whether they're in a max effort or dynamic effort, you know, bench day, let's look at the exercises they're going to focus on. They're going to focus on bench press, dumbbell press, and they're going to do a little shoulder and a little tricep at the end as assistance exercises. So when you when you strip everything away, the biggest difference comes out the terminology. The bodybuilder speaks in muscles. Oh, I blasted my chest and dopes today in my triceps. And the powerlifter says, I did a maximum effort push day today. But when you look at the exercises, they're very, very similar. Now, maybe there's some difference in reps, but that's just a change in repetitions. <laughs> you know, they order it the same, compound lifts first, isolation lifts last. So they're really more similar than different. So I've always been interested to know why people get so caught up in these arguments. Now, um, if I have to be, if I have to oversimplify things, I would say this. Powerlifting, as far as, when we're thinking about it, as far as getting better at moving weight, is, is more neural driven. It's hardware driven, right? Because there's a lot of people who aren't big and huge that can still be, still be really, really strong, right? Mm-hmm. Versus a bodybuilder, it's more about physiological change. And there's a lot of bodybuilders that are big dudes, but they're not that strong, right? So the benefit that you can get from each is that if you look at your body as a computer, you wouldn't want to buy a computer running the latest software on outdated hardware any more than you'd buy a computer that has the updated hardware running on outdated software. So a bodybuilder would definitely benefit from maybe doing some fast or some heavier lifts to increase their motor unit recruitment. And that motor unit recruitment is going to carry over and they'll bring more muscle into the game with even the little exercises they do like bicep curls and triceps extensions because they have a little bit more mind-muscle connection. You know, they're able to bring more muscle into the game. Plus, you know, you have that you could talk about the hypertrophy, functional versus structural. Um, 
And then you have a power lifter. If you look at their assistance exercises, most of them are done in a bodybuilding type range, you know, in that 8 to 15 type range. And what I think a lot of power lifters understand is that even though they don't, they don't call them bodybuilding exercises or they call them assistance exercises, is they're really building the structural strength, you know, the tendon strength, muscular strength, the bone density to be able to support the heaviest weights they're doing in their primary lifts. So there's the benefit to both. And then it's just going to come back uh, to your goals. So if your goal is to look better naked and get huge on the beach, you know, or just be the biggest guy on the beach, then you obviously want to sway more towards the physiological training, you know, the, the pump-type exercises, the grinder-type exercises. But you should do a little bit, if you're at least training with me, we'll still have you do a little bit of heavy stuff or fast stuff or explosive stuff because we believe that's important. And if you're a power lifter, I think the power kind of already have that program already in place. But I might do, I might say, okay, now that we've trained your movements, you know, a vertical push or a horizontal push or your bench or whatever, Let's make sure we strengthen your pecs, strengthen your shoulders, strengthen your triceps, so all those connective tissues and ligaments are really, really tolerant of big loads. They can all mechanically do what we need them to do. Right. And I'll tell you what, Nick. I one of the things that I've noticed is when I jumped into powerlifting, just because of work and everything else, you know, I I really focused on the big three lifts, and I I probably overdid them. I didn't do traditional uh, powerlifting assistance work or accessory work. And I wasn't really doing my usual bodybuilding stuff either. And I started finding, you know, my shoulders are grinding, my back is tight, you know, I was losing flexibility and those kinds of things. And at first I started blaming powerlifting a little, you know. And then I started realizing that I didn't have the requisite flexibility or soft tissue condition, you know, general conditioning, I think, uh, in order to do that right, you know. And, and my only defense really is my schedule was so insane, it was hard for me to put all that together. So let me ask you all three of you guys, because you have a, all of you guys have a wealth of experience with this. But so, how would you put this together? How would you periodize the uh, the power versus the conditioning and bodybuilding stuff, like within a workout? Uh, after you know, twelve weeks of one, then twelve weeks of another. Uh, you know, and, and kind of on on that point, um, and to what has been said in the last 10, 10 minutes or so. You know, you're saying how, and I've been saying it too, you know, I mean, when I used to be a, a bodybuilder, I'd say, you know, I'm going to do chest and triceps, right? And today I'm doing bench. And you're saying, you know, so it's essentially the same type, it, it, it is the same type of thing. Um, but again, as, as I'm always pointing out on this show, you know, the psychological um, component of all this can't be ignored. And that is that having been both a competitive bodybuilder and now competitive powerlifter, um, and having made that switch in the terminology and what that means, you know, to a person psychologically, is huge. Um, I think what it does is it, it you know, the, the difference between going to the gym and saying, you know, today I've got, you know, legs and calves, and going to the gym and saying, you know, today I've got squats, and it really does. And, and I can only speak for myself, but I, I would imagine it's it's probably true for um, other strength. Um, you know, trainers and powerlifters and so forth, is that the psychological shift is huge. I mean, well, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's, isn't it? It's I mean, different, it's the difference it's between going into the gym and saying, you know, I'm going in to blast back. It's kind of a, you know, I mean, again, this is not being on bodybuilding training or that kind of mentality because I had it for years, but it's kind of very ambiguous, kind of like a shotgun. It's kind of like just you're going in to blast back. What does that mean? Well, I want to get a pump. I want to get tired. I expect to be sweaty. I, 
you know what I mean? Do the reps. Whereas if you're going in, I'm today's deadlift day. You know, it, it really lends itself to an, the idea mentally of being performance based and, and kind of almost looking at it more as a sporting event rather than just an athletic pursuit. Right. And I well, think I can tell you, Rob, that's what, that was what was difficult for me was when I started writing these last nine months or so of doing, you know, really the three power lifts was writing the movement. It was very movement-focused, not muscle-focused, and it's really hard for me to do that. And I don't consider myself a primper. I think we got to be careful with some of this derogatory stuff. But the point being is, you know, like, I thought, well, where am I going to deadlift? I mean, I don't want to do it on leg day. Leg, squats have always been a performance movement for me. You guys know that. But where do I put my deadlifts? Is It's not yeah. back. Um you know, I wanted to segment my body into a three or four way split. You know what I mean? I was very anatomical and I wasn't movement focused. And I'm like, where the hell am I going to put deadlifts? And then I realized that I've just got to wash the whole anatomical focus, mind and the muscle thing, and just separate each of these movements by a couple of days. So if there is carryover, you know, because deadlift, of course, being hips and legs and back and all of the above, you know, it's it's more of a non-issue that it's. I, I didn't have to pigeonhole that into a back movement or a leg movement, which is what I was yeah. trying to do. So. Well, I, I want to throw something out real quick. Um, that I really like that you mentioned the psychological aspect, and I'm going to take that a step further. And um, I'll, before I get into that, I'll say this. When I have a bodybuilder, and I do work with some professional bodybuilders that come to me, and I want to try to inject a little bit more strength-oriented work, the rep ranges I do are different than what I would do with somebody who's really in the powerlifting mindset. And I do not have experience working with power. I've never trained a powerlifter for a powerlifting event. So I'll put that right out there just so you guys know what my limitations are. But that being said, um, most bodybuilders are doing 8 to 15 reps. Occasionally they'll throw a 6 repper in there. When we're in a, when I'm doing strength work with a bodybuilder, I'm really just concerned with the motor unit recruitment, but I'm also concerned by not trying to turn them into a bodybuilder and having them end up getting hurt. So we don't really go under three reps. Most of my rep range are three to six with these guys, and I ask them to explode into the weight or rip the weight off the floor. You know, I want them to think more a motor unit recruitment than anything else. So that's where it will differ a little bit from if somebody comes and says, I'm looking for max strength, you know, then I'm probably going to try to consult with one of you guys. <laughs> you know, um, so that's where it's a little different. And going back to the psychology you know, to me, I love going in the gym and saying, I'm going to blast my back and blast my chest. And I, the, what I've tried to be careful with is not to inflict my personal opinions on what this person's goal is because if somebody's goal is physique-related, I've found it's going to be hard for them to get buy-in when I'm talking movement and they're talking muscle. I'm going to go, oh, your deadlift's going to be so impressive in the gym. And they're kind of looking at me like, I never said I want to be a, you know, a gym stud. I said I want to be a beach stud. You know, so so psychologically, I talk to them differently. Like, I'm going to say, hey, look, this is really going to, you know, build density in your glutes. Uh, you know, but for the, the football player or the rest, I'm going to go, hey, look, this is going to help you explode into your, you know, your sprints or whatever. And if I'm talking to a woman, I mean, this is going to lift your rear end. You know, but um, the biggest thing there is the reps. If it's a bodybuilder, I'm staying in like four to six sets of four to six reps exploding into the weight or ripping the weight off the floor if it's a deadlift, versus if someone is an athlete, performance athlete, um, I might go a little bit more of the, you know, three to five range. But I don't do too much max strength type stuff because I've, 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 that's where I've seen most people get hurt. So I try to, we've had good luck with the four to six range. 
so I tend to stick in that zone. No, and on what, you, on what you just mentioned, I think that I, I caught it early on when you were kind of giving your introduction. I think it's great, and you, I think that comes with time and with people that are working with um, varied clientele. The whole, um, what I tell my clients the minute they walk in is, you know, a coach's job is not, my job isn't to make them what I want them to be. My job is to make them what they want to be. And you have to change it from client to client, like you said, the verbiage you use. Um, because a physique athlete could care less if, if they're going to be, you know, ripping shit off the floor or having a 10-second 100. You know, they don't care as long as they look like they can. And and mm-hmm. same thing, you know, so, I mean, I think that's a, a great thing, a, a great um, aspect you mentioned. And as well, um, you know, back to the powerlifting thing, I think, uh, versus bodybuilder, I think they both, sure, I think, I think the powerlifters mm-hmm. are more, in tune with it, but I think there's more to be learned. Um, even on the mental aspect, you know, I can go in and it doesn't wear me out to, I'm going to go and do max effort deadlift day. That's very comfortable to me. And let's say, okay, I'm going to go in and blast my lats now with my, with my years of powerlifting experience. It's, it's very mentally taxing to me. I was out there the other day, you know, I'm 270 pounds. I can knock out 20 chins, but I went in the other day with the whole mindset of, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on my lats, and I had 33. Or I had 66 pounds on a pull down machine, and I 20 reps killed me mm. from concentrating on my lats. Funny. Yeah. Well, I find this very interesting actually, because it, it, this is very interesting to me because I'm the opposite, as Lonnie knows best of all of us. You know, I started as a bodybuilder, and and that's kind of my roots, and will always be my roots. And I actually find the opposite that when I when I actually want to de-stressed my mind from an athletic standpoint to kind of, you know, allow myself to have an active rest kind of week or two, I will actually go in the gym and think and change my thinking, revert back to my first 10, 12 years of the whole idea of, okay, well, I'm just, I'm not going to go into a deadlift. I'm just going to go in and do some back stuff, you know? And I find that actually to be very therapeutic, whereas I find the mind stress for me, and I love it, <laughs> obviously, but the mind stress for me is the opposite of you, Phil. The mind, the, the mind stress for me is the consistency of always thinking performance, 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 exercises, exercises, performance, performance. So it, it's interesting because like we're totally opposite there. So Well, I'll tell you guys, well, I was just going to say, one of the things that I really noticed, because I've been doing shameless bodybuilding style training for about the last two or three weeks, and I'm just going to get as big as I can this summer and I, you know, I, the strength is paying off, by the way, Phil, I, just to make you feel better. The, yeah. Those nine months that I, I put in getting, you know, my five sets of five in the squat and the bench better, there's no question. I mean, the, without a, a ton of effort, I could grab 100, 120-pound dumbbells and just move them for multiple sets. And I, I couldn't really do that before. My, but what's beautiful about this is they don't grind my shoulders, but I can use more weight because of the time I spent with the barbell benching. But at the same time, I think one of the things that you you two guys are talking about is, and I, I'm feeling it again, and I, I'm geared toward this. I love this, is that in intensity isn't the right word because intensity in exercise science literally means percent of your one rep max. So we'll say exhaustion in a way or you know repeat uh, mental intensity or effort. I feel that's much more challenging with the bodybuilding work that I'm doing compared to the very limited powerlifting work that I've been doing for the last eight months. You know what I mean? It's very, uh, I feel like my conditioning is going to improve. My body fat's going to go down. There's a lot more, um, 
you know, you do a dozen sets of eight with, you know, 250 in the pull, even if it's just a pull down or something like that. That's hard. And so, so in other words, I'm in the minority here. Well, I don't know. You're saying you grab. What, what's your inclination then? Your inclination is you rather do ten sets I, of twelve. I, or? I'm I'm much more. I don't, I don't like to use the word comfortable because I'm comfortable. Period. Lifting weights in any manner, but I'm more. Again, because of my first ten, twelve years or whatever of, of being such a hard line kind of a you know a disciple flex magazine and that kind of thing. I'm comfortable just going in and having this mentality of destroying chest versus going in and saying. Here's what I have to lift. Here's my percentages, and maybe it's maybe it's more a case of just my perfectionism. You know, like I go in with this idea of that, you know, I have to do this, and I have to do it to a certain standard of performance and to a certain technical degree of you know excellence. So I kind of like really stress myself. Whereas if I'm just going, I think, okay, well, I'm just going to blow up my back today. Go, you know, and smash my back today. It's to me, it's I can almost go and. and I can almost go into auto auto mode to do that. And don't make no mistake, the intensity is extremely high and I'm focusing hard. The effort, but I don't yeah. but yeah. E- so even though it's more mental, it's not if that makes any sense. It's just kind of like it's almost like my default. Well, I, think I, I will re- say this, high rep sets like Phil mentioned, those are hard for me too. I, I was saying the other day about how I I was fall back into this five to eight comfortable rep range you know well you do something like when i was reading some stuff we had nick bird on the show last year and he was talking about how maximal muscle protein synthesis might actually be occurring with like 23 rep sets and i'm like whoa so i actually did that for a while on my light days you know i'd go heavy heavy light heavy heavy light in in sort of undulating manner and oh man that's hard I mean the burn. It, it's, oh yeah, it, it's a, it's just oh, yeah. a it's a completely different sensation to keep cranking through that kind of burn than to do three reps with something really heavy. Yeah, yeah. we we just did an experiment. Actually, it's, it, I did it in coordination with you know VPX, and all VPX really did was just provide one of my figure girl clients supplements. Aside from that, was my program. But um, I'd seen some really good hypertrophy gains from uh, complexes, leg complexes chest complexes, you know, where you do like 80 push-ups, you know, 10 of this way and 10 of that way and 10 of this way, or you do like 24 squats, like the old Vern Gambetta uh, burn with the Vern. You do 24, this is body weight, 24 squats, 24 lunges, 24 jump lunges, and 12 jump squats, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the yeah. other. And um, my very one of my very good friends and, and mentors, Juan Carlos Santana, down here in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, he's talked about how he's seen hypertrophy. Well, anyway, I've got some some before and afters. I haven't been able to chance to put them up yet because my internet blew yesterday. But um, we have one of my figure girls. We wanted to do an experiment to see if we could get her figure ready. Now she was already super fit, low body fat. She already had abs. <laughs> All right, but we wanted to see if we could get her figure show ready with doing nothing but body weight and bands. And you'll see, we did it. She got stronger. Her lats are ten are so much wider. She said she's busting out of her bras. And I have the before and afters. And we never touched a piece of iron. Hmm. And it was all high rep, high volume, high intensity, uh, complex. Depth. Nick, you're touching on something that that Rob was sort of alluding to earlier, which is there's a there's a seeming vagary with bodybuilding, and maybe it is vague on some level because it's not as quantitative as you know a half a percent nudge up in your bench press but at the same time when you're about muscle hypertrophy you know what i mean exact numbers don't always pay off like you're not guaranteed bigger chest 
because you did half a percent more in the bench press. You know what I mean? You, the, the, yeah. There's not a perfect linear relationship between weight and muscle mass, although there are yeah. correlations like we talked about earlier. There's other ways to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. You know what I mean? So you're you're juggling so many balls, and ultimately the mirror is is the guide, not not the calculator. You know? Yeah. Well, I'll and, I'll, I'll, I'll give you tough. a couple. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Oh no, um, I was just gonna say it's it's tough because the mirror is subjective, and you, then you've got to almost get like different raters. You know, like people you count on with very high standards looking at that mirror. Balancing it with the scale and, you know, coming up with some kind of feedback as, as far as the efficacy goes. Yeah, well, I'll, well, I'll tell you, here's here's the thing, you know, and and everybody always knows this. Oh, you want to dictate your training based on principles. You know, principles dictate the methods and blah, blah, blah. Everybody says that, but when I see it actually happening, I do see a lot of biases, you know, happening in the program, and they don't really use principles. So let me give you an, a prime example of this. So... The very typical type program that I see so many trainers and strength coaches is the shotgun type program that you hear so much about. You know, you do a hip dominant movement, a leg dominant movement, a vertical push, a vertical pull, and vertical press and some core and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or if it's a push day, you do a vertical push, a vertical pull, you know, and a few pulling, you know, and it's so balanced and it's paired and it's paired up and whatnot. And then you look at a bodybuilder exercise and you go, a bodybuilder type program, you know, an old Arnold, Franco, Columbo, whatever, and it's like, you know, bench press, chest press, chest flies, push-ups, and a lot of coaches, oh, that's so much redundancy. All you need is one vertical and one horizontal. But when you look at the science, the exercise science in structural hypertrophy, it tells us some interesting things. In the general, and I'm, you know, I'm summarizing lots of science from the 60s on, the general rest range you're looking for between sets on a particular muscle group to create hypertrophy is 30 to 60 seconds up to 90, right? So when you're doing paired sets, let's say you pair up uh, dumbbell, chest press, and rows, you know, some sort of row, whether it be TRX row, one-arm dumbbell row, whatever you your choice de jour exercise is injected in there. And the typical program I see is, okay, you do your press, and you rest 30 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever, and then you do your other pull and you rest 30, 45 seconds and you go back to the press. Well, if you add up the time between presses, you're like two, two and a half minutes in. That rest is too long based on the principles of hypertrophy for you to gain hypertrophy for, for someone who's a trained athlete. We're not talking about the beginner because everything works for the beginner. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, you don't get a pump when you always focus on strength. Pump has definitely been shown to create that cell swelling and blood flow and create hypertrophy right. as well. And I'll tell you the what, last... Nick, is one thing that I noticed, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, just real quick, is one of the things, like, I feel literally bigger now that I've been doing bodybuilding training, and that's from two things. I'm not delusional, you know. One is you deplete your glycogen with the higher rep stuff. So when you deplete yourself like that in a workout, you carry more glycogen outside of the gym, you know. And the other thing is inflammation. It's just the obvious inflammation. So yeah, it, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so I'm just I'm just agreeing with you, but you know, there's there's definite reasons for that. I think. Yeah. So a few. I'll throw out two more real quick. General principles. So the whole concept of pairing exercises, you know, as long as the pair doesn't take you more than 90 seconds to return back to the initial exercise, you're not breaking a fundamental principle of structural hypertrophy gaining. Also, let's look at overall volume. The general research shows that you know the overall set is per muscle group is 8 to 12 reps, 8 to 15 reps, okay, 3 to 4 sets. Well, when you look at it over a week, in order to make a muscle change, you know, physiologically grow, change its physiological size, 
they say it takes anywhere from 10, more than closer to 12, 12 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. Meaning, if you're trying to get your chest to grow, your pecs to grow, and I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about just your pecs. That means you would need to do 12 to 20 sets of, of uh, 8 to 12, 8 to 15 reps, depending on who you read, of horizontal shoulder abduction type movements. Push-ups, dumbbell press, uh, bench press, you, you, you get where I'm going with this. Chest flies, different things. So now it starts to make the old Arnold Schwarzenegger workouts look pretty damn scientific. So now we look at the modern coach workout, and they do a horizontal press maybe twice a week, and they do five sets of each. Well, for a non-conditioned athlete, that might work, but for a conditioned athlete, there's not enough volume per week on that muscle group to make that chest grow based on the science. Right? Yeah. So, I'll tell you, well, there, and again, with the individual differences, we were talking about you know, back and spine and this and that. and even I think even with hypertrophy, you, you go into these sorts of things, and everybody's seen people respond ridiculously. I mean, there's even guys who look like they lift who barely lift at all, or they can do general conditioning work and be <laughs> bigger than I am. You know what yeah. I mean? So, I mean, the protein synthetic response to dietary changes when you throw that in or the style of training, you know what I mean? All, all these all these research studies are, of course, the mean. They're the average of a group of people responding differently. And, I mean, the ACSM actually puts out once a year um, a paper on performance genetics, you know, about how people have genetic tendencies toward one thing or another. They respond to dieting better or this or that. And, you know, and, and, and again, this all comes back to the whole idea of a coach, you know, taking – uh, the literature, and then that's, I mean, I think that's what evidence-based practice is, whether you're a, a dietitian or a, or a doctor or a nurse or a coach or whatever you are, you look at the literature and you say, this is the, the probability, and then let's see how this applies to you, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Nick, I wanted to thank you for being on the show. We are just about out of time. Okay. Um, I did, if I had, if I could interject one last thing I just wanted to say. Um, I would just say the other thing is to that every athlete should incorporate a little bit, regardless, is some of this general mobility work, just some athletic-type movement and whatnot. You know, it's not bodybuilding that causes you to become less coordinated, and it's not powerlifting that causes you to become less coordinated or whatnot. It's that if you don't use it, you lose it. So, for instance, football players, a lot of NFL teams, their strength conditioning programs are either bodybuilding or powerlifting, but they don't become less able to move in three dimensions because they do their functional training and it's called football right. practice, right? right. So, right, yeah. you know, with a, with a bodybuilder or a powerlifter, you know, we start to incorporate in the beginning or the cool down some of these mobility, mobility protocols and maybe even have them do some lateral shuffles and skips, I'm not trying to turn them into uh, someone who's trying out for the 40, but we just give them things that they're not getting you know, on their own, and I think that all these linear sagittal plane type sports get a bad reputation. People go, "Oh, well, it's all sagittal plane, whatever." They don't lose that because it's powerlifting or body. They lose it because it, all they do is powerlifting or body. But when you add in a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you keep your current levels of those movements while you cultivate whatever your goal is. And that's another kind of. Uh, hybrid training concept right well we've actually talked in the past about you know how important is is the specificity principle you know and i was so swamped for time this last year i mean i'm really living proof i literally was so specific that i i left out a lot of the stuff that was maintaining my flexibility my range of motion in different movements or you know soft tissue conditioning or whatever you want to call it and i paid the price for it you know what i mean i over specified in three lifts 
And, uh, you know, of course, in my mind, then I'm like, oh, well, bodybuilding is better for me. But, you know, it's because I didn't really do the powerlifting in a comprehensive way. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. All right, man. Thanks for being on, Nick. Oh, I really appreciate you guys having me. I, I love this kind of shop talk, and, and uh, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot. It yeah, was a good conversation. Good. Awesome. Absolutely. All yeah. right, guys. Until All right, next, next week. week. <laughs> Brothers, I am calling from the valley of the kings with nothing to atone. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I had done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I wanna have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.